So for those of you visiting with us, we are going through the Gospels in chronological order. So I'm, this isn't a special Easter message. We're just going to keep on trucking through. So we're almost a year into our series. We started in the very beginning of the Gospels, and we're working ourselves through. I'd love to tell you that I planned uh, for this Sunday to be this message, but I didn't. But it's resurrection-themed, so who would have thought? Um, I'm, if you know me, uh, my organizational skills are subpar, so God has to make up the difference. He always seems to do that. So we're going to be in Luke today. It's actually a pretty short passage, but I think there's some deep value in it. So we're going to start in Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse 11. It says that soon afterward, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. As he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her, and he said, don't cry. So as Jesus is going about his ministry, for those of you who've been here, we're, we're reading along through the Gospels, he gets to a town called Nain, and Nain is an interesting little town. It's about five miles south of Nazareth. We know Nazareth is an important, of course, town where Jesus grew up, so this is in familiar territory for Jesus, not far from his, his town where he was raised. It's, it's midway between the towns of Indor and Shunem, and the reason that that's important is there's going to be another widow's son in the Old Testament who is raised not far from here. And so you're going to see why there's a reaction that people have here in this next passage. That's why I mentioned it now. So this is not unheard of in this region. Okay? Um, Elijah actually is going to raise an only son in 2 Kings chapter 4, just in the vicinity of where this one's happening. And I tell you that because in a minute it's going to be important. So Jesus is goes into this town, the disciples are there, and when they get there, they can tell something's going on. Jesus brings with him at this point a large crowd as well. So as they enter the town, as they're about to go to the town gate, which is how you get into the town, they see that there's a funeral procession that's going on. Very important in the Jewish faith. Uh, families would literally, generally mourn for the death of a loved one for, for an entire month. And this procession would have people from the town, from the family, of course, weeping and mourning the loss of, of this man. So there's a lot of emotion happening here that Jesus is entering himself into, right? And what we find out in the gospel story is that the, the person who has is, who is passed, the person who has died, is the only son of a woman who is already a widow. So she's already lost her husband at some point. We don't know when. Could have been days, could have been months, could have been years. She's lost her husband at some point. She has one son, and the son has now passed. So that'd be difficult enough for us in our time and place, right, to lose not only your spouse, but to also lose a child. I think any of us who are parents would, would tell you at 100% of the time that if you had to choose me or my kids, please take me first, right? The last thing any of us ever want to do as parents have to bury a child. And so you can imagine, if you put yourself in her shoes, and we don't know her name, all we know her here as a widow, put yourself, yourself in her shoes, she is hurting deeply. She essentially has, has no one in her immediate family left. Now for us, that'd be hard enough. In her world, it's even more difficult. Because remember, this is a very patriarchal society. We're talking almost 2,000 years ago. And she can't just go to work getting a job somewhere. And so unless she has other family who will support her, 
Not only is this a terrible loss for her, just as the fact that she's losing her son, but she's now lost any security she may have. And so without a husband and without a son, she has no one to care for her in a world in where she just can't go get a job. So she has literally lost everything. Not just the present, but she's lost her hope of the future as well. And so I, I tell you that so you can enter into the story with her, you can put yourself in her shoes and be thinking about as you're burying your son, your only son, realizing that you have no hope for tomorrow. That unless someone is kind and generous and compassionate in her family, she will become destitute probably rather quickly and eventually may even have to beg for her substance. She has no hope. The large crowd that is with her now, helping her mourn, is probably most of the town. But that large crowd is going to go home, back to their regular lives. And she will be left with nothing. And we read in verse 13, and Luke uses this word on purpose here, by the way. Notice he doesn't use Jesus' name, but he uses the title for Jesus. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her, and he said, don't cry. Now, as a pastor, as a chaplain on the fire department, I've been with lots of people when they've breathed their last breath. And I've been with family members and done my best to try to console them in those moments. I'm going to tell you that what Jesus says here, it's, he can say it. You can't. Because Jesus knows what he's about to do, right? And the spoiler is he's going he's to bring the kid back to life. I don't have that ability. I'm guessing you don't either. He can tell her don't cry because he's going to fix the problem. When I show up there and someone's hurting, I can't fix the problem. What I can do is I can make it worse with my words. So in those moments, I would suggest to you that you be very careful what you say. And we always give contrite answers because we feel like we have to say something, right? Like there's a silver lining in every cloud. We give all these answers that are useless and meaningless to somebody who's hurting deeply. Jesus can say this because he's going to fix the problem. The problem I have when I show up there is I can't fix this problem. And so I'll tell you that what we need to do in those moments when you're around somebody who is just hurting is do what Job's friends did for the first week. They, they messed up after that. They just showed up. Jewish people call it the practice of sitting shiva. That when someone dies, you just show up and you're just there. And I will tell you that your presence means more than any words that are going to come out of your mouth. And so just show up. You don't have to say anything. There's nothing you're going to say that's going to make it any better. But your presence does. And so when you just show up to let somebody know that you care for them, you've spoken volumes, haven't you? Now, Jesus sees her, and his heart went out to her. It's because Jesus is full of compassion and mercy and grace. And so he sees the situation, he understands it, and he, he's going to act. And this is what it says. Then he went up and touched the buyer they were carrying him on, and the bearers stood still. He said, young man, I say to you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to talk. And Jesus gave him back to his mother. I'm going to stop there. There's a lot to unpack just in that little section. So what he'd be being carried on is what we would consider almost like a backboard for anyone who's 
ever done anything in the medical field. A stretcher. He's been carried out, out of town. He would have been wrapped. His whole body would be wrapped in linen. They're carrying him out, probably already covered with some of the spices. Because remember, in this time and place, generally, depending on your wealth, you were actually laid out inside of a tomb, if possible, if you had that much money. And then later on, your family would actually come back and collect your bones and put them in an ossuary, in a box. Don't know how much money this family has, if that's a possibility. But there's a whole preparation for that, for that process. And part of it was wrapping the body. So he'd have been wrapped. And so if you just take, forget for a second that's a Bible story, and enter into the story. And imagine you're one of those people, maybe, maybe you've done this before, You've been a pallbearer. You've helped carry a coffin. And imagine the person in that coffin starts moving. Right? Take it. We get all serious because it's the Bible story. But just practically be there. And this guy comes up and starts talking to this dead person. You're thinking to yourself, um, buddy, he's dead. I don't, he can't hear you, right? I mean, you can try, but it's not going to work. And then it works. And that dude sits up. All wrapped in linen looking like a mummy. I'm going to be honest with you, I'm, I'm not going to be carrying my weight as the pallbearer at that point. I might have dropped him and ran, to be perfectly honest with you. <laughs> okay, I'm out, right? Apparently I'm not needed anymore. I'm going to go home. Because <laughs> this dude just sat up, right? Either this is a really weird prank or that's, this man just came back to life. It's resurrection though, isn't it? bringing dead things to life. What is so great about our God is that's exactly what he does. He loves to take dead things and bring them back to life. Apostle Paul tells us that we are dead in our trespasses and our sins. I like to use the analogy because they're so popular in, in popular culture of zombies that you and I, are, before we know Jesus, we're just zombies. Right? Because zombies are dead. They just don't know they're dead. They can't think, they can't, you know what I'm saying? Like, I, if you've ever seen a movie or a television commercial or a TV show with zombies in them, they've died and they've come back to life, but they're not really alive, you know what I mean? Like, their body's animated, they can move, they can do things, but they're not living. They can't think, they can't reason, they can't. And I, that's how I always picture each and every one of us before we meet Jesus. Because we're dead, we just don't know we're dead. And we've made a mess of whatever... It is that's before us, and we don't know what to do. And that's generally the moment when we reach out to him, isn't it? When we've made a mess that we can't, can't clean up. Here in this moment, this, this mother, this widow, needs hope, doesn't she? Needs to know that she has a future. And in an instant, Jesus restores to her a hope and a future. He does the same thing for us all the time. He's gifted you and I with his spirit that convicts, that encourages, that supports, that prays for us when we don't even know how to pray and can't get the words out. Every spot along the way of our life, whether we know it, we realize it or not, God is there. Showing up with his love, with his compassion, and with his mercy. Just like he is for this woman here. Who doesn't know what to do now that her husband and son is gone. 
and in a moment is gifted back with her son. Look what it says in verse 15. The dead man sat up and began to talk, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. Boy, didn't he. He sure did. By bringing this young man back to life, he didn't just restore his life, but restored his mother's as well. Because that's what our God does. He's in the restoration business. He takes old, beat-up cars. That's us. I've had a few dents along the way, missing a mirror or two. The light bulbs have been burned out. The paint's starting to chip. And he gets to work on us, doesn't he? See, the problem we've had with church for a long time is people thought they had to be cleaned up to come in, and that's not the case. If you had to be cleaned up to come to church, then none of us would be here today. I'd be the first one to walk on out of here. If perfect people have to, you have to be perfect to come to church, then the church would be empty. We turn the lights on. None, I couldn't even come here and turn the lights on. I mean, we have to leave them on. So we come to God just as we are. Because he accepts us just as we are. All dented up and getting a little rusty. A couple of light bulbs have burned out. And the dents are getting bigger and bigger. And it turns out he loves us that way. God's not scared of a project. Look at the response. It's the same response we all would have had, too, if we would have been there as well in verse 16 and 17. They were all filled with awe and praised God. A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people. This news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding country. It's like, well, yeah, I bet it did. If you're one of the six men, Carrot being the pallbearers, you went and started telling that story pretty quick, didn't you? Yeah, like, you're never going to believe what happened. I'm just carrying this dude, and some guy came and told him to sit up, and he sat up and started talking, and then I ran, because I had to go change my pants, right? <laughs> and I came back, and sure enough, he was alive. It's like, that's a cool story to tell, right? I mean, that's a, that's a pretty neat story. So, of course, word spread about it. How could it not? The point being, though, is they knew who to give credit to. It's what they witnessed. They praised God. They knew, man, this is the only way this can happen. Now, I mentioned earlier that there had been another widow's son raised in this vicinity. And the reason I mentioned that is because this word right here. They were all filled with awe and praise God. A great prophet has appeared among us, is what they said. And if you understand the history of this area, it would make complete sense. And the history of this happening before. There's a couple occasions in the Old Testament where this exact thing happens. Where a widow's son is brought back to life. The first one is in 1 Kings 17. It's Elijah with a J this time. There is this widow who's been helping take care of him, providing him food and shelter as he's been traveling around. And her son, again, she's a widow. She's relying upon her son. Her son passes away. He dies. And this is the story. In 1 Kings 17, 17, it says, Sometime later, the son of the woman who owned the house became ill. He grew worse and worse and finally stopped breathing. She said to Elijah, What do you have against me, man of God? Did you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son? Give me your son, Elijah replied. He took him from her arms, carried him to the upper room where he was staying, and laid him on his bed. Then he cried out to the Lord, Lord, my God, have you brought tragedy even on this widow I am staying with by causing her son to die? Then he stretched himself out on the boy three times and cried out to the Lord, Lord, my God, let this boy's life return to him. The Lord heard Elijah's cry, 
and the boy's life returned to him, and he lived. Elijah picked up the child and carried him down from the room into the house. He gave him to his mother and said, Look, your son is alive. And the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God, that the word of the Lord from your mouth is the truth. And then in 2 Kings chapter 4, beginning in verse 32, this is the one that happens just down the road from where Jesus is in this story. When Elijah reached the house, there was the boy lying dead on his couch. He went in, shut the door on the two of them, and prayed to the Lord. Then he got on the bed and laid on the boy, mouth to mouth, eyes to eyes, hands to hands, as he stretched himself out on him. The boy's body grew, grew warm. Elijah turned away and walked back and forth in the room and then got on the bed and stretched out on him once more. The boy sne- sneezed seven times and opened his eyes. Elijah summoned Gazai and said, Call the Shunammite. And he did. And she came, he said, take your son. She came in, fell at his feet, and bowed to the ground. And she shook her son and went out. Tell you those stories because the prophets had done something rather similar. And so people knowing that, because they know their Old Testament, right? They know the book. When they, when they see a widow's son come back to life, they think to themselves, wait a second, I've heard this story before. Matter of fact, this one, one of these happened just down the road from here. And so they're giving Jesus an honor, not quite high enough by calling him a prophet, but they're realizing that this man is, is from God, that he's up to something big, and that, man, they better pay attention. Now, you and I are here today to celebrate a different resurrection, aren't we? Turns out the man who's giving life to others is going to have to pay for the sins of everyone with his life. And as Jesus faces the horrors of the cross on our behalf, for us, he conquers sin once and for all. His bloodshed being the paying, the atonement of the sins of everybody who had lived, who was living, and who would ever live. So when we, sing that, we sing that song about how there's power in the blood. Boy, is there. The crucifixion, the death of the Messiah, fixes the problem of sin. The problem, though, is that there was one problem left to fix still. Most of his disciples that had been with him for three, three and a half years at that point missed it, didn't understand what was to come next. A few women understood the best they could and showed up on Sunday morning. They were just going through what they were supposed to do, putting more spices on the body of Jesus as it laid in the tomb. And what did they discover when they got to the tomb? It was empty. See, Jesus had already fixed the problem of sin on the cross. Now he was fixing the problem of death with the empty tomb. Jesus is the problem fixer, isn't he? Fixes the problems, the greatest problems that humanity had ever, have, had ever or would ever face. Sin and death. He fixes them in three days. I want to read to you Paul's words in the book of Ephesians chapter 2. He says this, As for you, you were dead, 
in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air. The Spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not by works, so that no one can boast. We are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Paul explains to the church in Ephesus, to the Ephesians, what it means to be made alive in Christ. And isn't that what today is all about? Dead things coming back to life. Every one of us at some point in our life, and maybe some of us in this room are there still today, have been dead in our transgressions and sins. We were zombies, walking around thinking we're alive, when really we were dead. And there's only one way to be brought back to life. It's Jesus. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. And all we have to do is trust, is believe. That's it. It's like the easiest solution to the biggest problem you will ever hear of. Is you can thrash around for years trying to fix all your sins all by yourself. Good luck with that, by the way. Let me know how that goes. I'm going to tell you how it goes. It's not going to go well. You can try lots of other methods. You can do lots of other things. There's lots of books you can read and things you can do and breathing exercises and stretches. Lots of fun stuff that you can do. None of them are going to fix the problem of sin in your life and my life. There's only one fix, and it's him. I don't know about you, but I don't want to carry the burden of sin around anymore. So I put my hope, my faith, and my trust in him. And then we're done. That's it. I know it sounds too good to be true. It sounds almost too easy. But anything more is not the gospel, and anything more is me telling Jesus that his sacrifice isn't enough. That I need to do more when I can't do any more. I come to this relationship with nothing in my hands, and my pocket's empty. And so he does all the work, and I get all of the benefit. Now, I know nothing in the world works that way. I get it. I understand that. Maybe it does. I mean, if, you're, if you have a job you don't show up to and they send you a paycheck still, let me know. I'd love to sign up for that job, right? I mean, that'd be, I'd do that. Yeah, that sounds cool. 
Nothing in the world, I understand, nothing works that way. We generally get what we deserve. But the gospel tells us that when we put our hope and our faith and our trust in Jesus, we don't get what we deserve. We get what he earned. Because I don't deserve much, if anything. Because my righteousness is just nothing. But when I take on his righteousness, the problem is fixed. We thank you for coming here today and worshiping with us on this very special day. And I'd ask that if you, if you don't know Jesus, man, I'd love to talk to you a little more about him. If you haven't put your hope and your faith and your trust in him yet, just talk to your neighbor. Talk to me after service. If you've been a Christian for a long time, but you're not quite sure, you know, which way's up, always here. He is all we have, guys, because he's all we need. Death, burial, and resurrection changes everything. So you and I have hope because we have Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the opportunity we have to gather here today. We pray for those who don't know you, that they may consider deeply, especially on today, Resurrection Sunday, a relationship with you, God. They put their hope and their faith and their trust in you. It's the only way we get to you, God. It's by believing in your Son. We thank you that you sent your Son to this earth to live a perfect, a sinless life, only to offer himself as a sacrifice on our behalf, to pay for the sins of all the people who had ever lived or would live. God, we thank you that the story doesn't end with crucifixion. Now, three days later, the tomb was found empty. Because just like this widow's son that we read about in this gospel story in Luke, your son, your only son, came back to life, giving us a hope and a future. And so, God, we ask that you'd help us to take that hope to the world, a world that needs it desperately, God. They need your hope, your love, your compassion, and your mercy. Help us to be your hands and feet everywhere we go, bringing you with us. Because they don't need more of us, God, they need more of you. So, Father, we thank you, and we love you. We pray all this in the powerful and healing name of your Son, Jesus, and all God's people said. Amen.